Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Welcome back to episode three of In Conversation With, and I'm joined tonight by the lovely Philosophy on Ice. Hi there. Hello. It's uh, great to have you on the show. Oh, it's good. It's good to be on the show. I've been a big fan of the show since I heard that one episode. <laughs> yeah. Oh, fantastic. Um, well, we're here tonight to talk about skepticism and the philosophical method, sort of where it comes from and why the philosophical method and the scientific method is good for learning about the world. So I think you wanted to start off by saying a bit about Socrates. Yeah, I think Socrates is a good starting point for like uh, scepticism, uh, in my view. Well, I don't think he was considered a skeptic. I don't really know why, but from what I know of him, I think he's a good starting point. So obviously, he's an ancient Greek. Yeah often considered like the father of philosophy I think it was partly because of his sort of uh, method of inquiry which was to to sort of doubt so he was this sort of uh, bizarre sort of character who meandered the, the streets of Athens and yeah yeah <laughs> um, what he tended to do was bring people into conversation um, and question them on different uh, philosophical ideas so um things like virtue or courage uh, and these sorts of things and he would ask them what they thought they knew about it and then sort of slowly break down the idea of what that is he would essentially usually draw the conclusion that it isn't quite what they thought um, and that's in essence the Socratic method um, and yeah so kind of reading he had a variety of different uh, books which are written by Plato and uh, essentially they they provide a good catalogue of of sort of doubt um, towards different ideas in life. Yeah, because Socrates of course famously uh, thought that he knew nothing and I suppose the only thing, the only place you can go from there is to, to ask questions and to, to doubt what other people are saying. Yeah, yeah. Well, the the idea of him knowing nothing comes from um, the re it's, it's the result of this questioning, this sort of questioning method in the first place. So, um, I think the story goes that one of his one of his mates, <laughs> one of his Greek mates, um, goes to speak to the oracle. I don't really know what an oracle does to this day. I don't really know what an oracle is supposed to do. But he asked the oracle. Is there any person who's smarter than Socrates? And the oracle says no. And he goes back to Socrates and tells him what the oracle said. And it, it confuses him. He's like, "Well, I don't feel like I know anything." So, yeah, 
it's it's definitely a a funny thing to say because you'd think that the the Greeks prizing you know intelligence and and wisdom and knowledge above all else is it must have been shocking to them for the oracle to say you know this this man he's he's the smartest person around because he knows nothing that's quite a weird thing to say yeah what's what's the quote again it's something like a wise man knows he knows nothing at all that's right yeah and he concluded yeah. he was smarter than others because they thought that they knew the what things like virtue and courage uh, were but he knew that they like they, these supposed experts didn't know anything yeah i think that was that was the point of it i think he he knew enough at least to uh push people he was talking to into a corner with their uh with their arguments anyway yeah he, i think he's known as being a right sarky bastard yeah i think one of my favorite <laughs> one of my favorite stories about socrates is when he was held on trial for uh the corruption of the youth of athens and they said to him something along the lines of well what do you think your punishment should be you know what what's fair for your crimes and he said free maintenance from the state <laughs> so they, they should pay because he thought he was doing the state a service That's but they right, um yeah. they weren't having none of it they thought oh you're such a sarky bitch and they gave him uh, hemlock and he just drank it <laughs> actually that isn't the entire story he, he did suggest no. that but um strangely back then you could suggest your own punishment which and and mm. that was his suggestion but then he uh the best he could go for was to say okay i'll take a small fine then which I think is even more ridiculous. He's like, charge me like a hundred quid and we'll call this quits. Yeah. Like, no, we'll put you to death, Socrates. Oh, Cheeky well. bastard. <laughs> and he, he was a drunk as well, so I quite admire that. Was he? Reason. I didn't know that. He, was a, he could drink gallons of booze and he was a fat guy. Or suppose, well, I don't know. Whenever you look at like portrayals of Socrates as a statue, he's always a tubby bastard, isn't he? I wasn't aware of that. That's well, quite funny. Yeah, have, have a look. If you go on Google, it, people always portray him as some big, fat, hairy bloke. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's just that that's the way it's gone over time, but... Yeah. Well, I mean, if he wasn't the um, the gold standard for fitness, shall we say, he definitely was for um, learning about the world and questioning things and how to have a, uh, a good conversation. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's something that can be brought across to today because... I don't know, I think we tend to take for granted today that we, we know a lot of stuff and we can know it with certainty, but you know, if Socrates was alive today, I think he'd, he'd have some things to say about that. Yeah, yeah. There was a quite a large period between Socrates and anyone else I know who, who spoke of sort of sceptical ideas. A good, solid, like, 1500, tw- tw- like 2000 years. <laughs> yeah. What was that? What was that period of, like, time where there was just like no philosophers no well, famous that was the, that was the um what was, that was that they were the christian times weren't they oh, <laughs> you, listen, you listen to the church and that was that that's what i imagine anyway it was it was yeah. up to the um up to the enlightenment and the renaissance wasn't it that's that's it isn't it that's so true yeah i never thought of that mm. i mean there, there are i mean i've looked i've looked them up and there's a bunch of philosophers who i've never heard of but because um, they were sort of um the the christians at the time they were quite afraid of the greeks because they thought like oh shit here's some people that started questioning you know the stuff that was handed to them the knowledge that was supposed to be certain mm. so mm. if you're part of the church that's a risk because you can't have the people questioning what you say and that's why i think a lot of the uh the praise through time 
goes to people like uh, Thomas Aquinas. I mean, he's a saint, isn't he? Because he, um, I think it was Aquinas. There's another guy as well. Can't remember his name. Yeah, I don't know much about him. Yeah, uh, he. Um, but they were caught sort of revered for um, combining Christian theology and, and Greek philosophy in in a way that it could work together. So they they didn't have to worry about it anymore. Yeah, I see. I see. Oh, your ex- your knowledge on this is good. Don't don't press me any deeper because it only runs <laughs> <laughs> it only runs so far. Um, I, I listened to your last podcast and I was quite impressed with the sort of range of uh, knowledge that both you and Exerbia had of like ancient and contemporary ideas. Yeah, mine's littered uh, with random ideas, but it's not a particularly full sort of catalogue well, of ideas. It's there. sometimes the best way to be. I wouldn't describe myself as having a full catalogue of ideas at any means, but. Um, <laughs> It's good enough for a chat anyway. And that's what yeah. we're here for. <laughs> that's all we're here for, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. This is why I like philosophy anyway. It's just chatting with people like you, talking through different ideas. And uh, there's there's many, many people who have had smarter ideas than us, I'm sure. Um, yeah. Who uh, have just got lost in the sand of time that we never heard, that we'll never hear of. But uh, yeah, that's why I quite like it. But yeah, I mean, should we move on to something else? Yeah. So... Um... We'll move forward. We've talked a bit about Socrates as sort of the um, the archetypal foundational figure for uh, scepticism in philosophy. Um, he's not really known as that, but that's... No, he's not known as that. I think he should be, though. Yeah, it's, it's mean, his sort of like method of doubting, which really, I think, is, is a great starting point for just breaking down different arguments, breaking down different ideas of what it is to be, you know, certain things. I think... Um, yeah. later translates into more solid sceptical ideas perhaps. yeah because there's definitely you know stuff we take for granted today that rely upon this whole sort of subset of foundational assumptions that we just tend to assume are true and we just take it as granted that they're true but you know a little poking around a little questioning and they they come up as they're not so certain as we think and I mean this was um, I suppose we should move on to Descartes um, this is one of the things that he was worried about because he he was there during the the Renaissance, the Enlightenment era, yeah. And uh, he he sort of came from the um, what's it called the Scholastic tradition. He was he was raised in the Scholastic tradition, and he just kind of learned all this stuff and accepted it. And he 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 thought that um, in order to get a good grounding in the sciences, that you needed a um, you know a good philosophical underpinning so you can know yeah. that what you're discovering is true and uh he painted a great picture i think it's in his his meditations or the discourse on method one of the two of the um the tree of knowledge so he's got um sort of the branches of the tree are sort of you know chemistry and, and biology the trunk of the tree is is physics yeah. and then you've got the roots of the tree is is metaphysics it's, it's the philosophical stuff yeah. and I mean, it's true when you think about it, without any sort of metaphysical grounding, then the sciences can't really do much. Yeah, philosophy's still got its uses after all this time, because there's a lot of things that science can't sort of deal with, and like those yeah. sort of metaphysics of knowledge, it does, it, there's a lot of crossover with that sort of science, that science um, kind of area, but... There was a, um, there was a lecture that I had... Um, this year and it was on I can't remember the exact name of it but there were there were a series of lectures discussing whether 
philosophy should be viewed as continuous or discontinuous with science, whether it's its own sort of separate thing, whether it should be oh. lumped off in the humanities and everything. Yeah. And one of the definitions that I really liked personally was that philosophy is the midwife of science. So it sort of, it gives birth to it. It, it, it sort of generates the ideas and, and refines them to a degree in which it can then, you know, <laughs> branch off to science and then science can do its thing. So science is sort of at like the bleeding edge of, sorry, philosophy is sort of at the bleeding edge. And when it gets sort of resolved enough, then it can become science. And I really like that view. Mm, yeah. I really don't think it's fair when people say, um, you know, scientists say, oh, we've got no use for philosophy. You know, science can do it all. And I'm like, really? It's like it can't do everything without a, a good philosophical science. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. there's yeah. a lot of gaps. Yeah, I think is I think because there's such a variety of different and really really differing ideas in philosophy, and they can't all be right. And um, so yeah, I, I, I don't necessarily trust in certain philosophical ideas, but it is an alternative. It, it kind of fills in the gaps that science uh, has for now, sort of thing. Yeah, it's an antiquated way of of looking at life really I don't know yeah but I mean there is something to be said for how long standing philosophy has been through time and how important it's been because I mean in in the beginning especially in the ancient times um, even up to I think it was only in the 17th century that science as its own discipline started to become a thing it was it was natural philosophy before that yeah that's true and it's been this that's massive true. generator of knowledge throughout time and it's it's shown itself again and again like yeah, the caricature still stands. You know, there's arguments throughout thousands of years and they never get resolved. Um, mm. But the the point still remains, I think, once they do get resolved, and it's then that science can, can then take hold of it and actually do something with it. And I like that um, description particularly because it explains the apparent lack of progress in philosophy, you know, because if as soon as something becomes resolved enough that it becomes science, then it, then it would seem like philosophy doesn't make any progress because it, it doesn't science makes all the progress and mm. you know fair enough science should get a lot of praise for what it does it's been a tremendous generator of knowledge for um hundreds of years and we're, we're in a place currently where it's uh there's loads of stuff that we wouldn't know i mean look at the you know we've got um satellites leaving the solar system nowadays or leaving the they've gone further than that haven't they <laughs> I don't know. They've gone really far. I mean, you know, yeah. there's there's satellites on Mars and there's all these amazing technological advances that we have that we wouldn't have if it were just science, you know. Philosophy yeah. couldn't philosophy can't make a an iPhone, can it? But <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um I suppose as well it's this is why this kind of highlights how important certain ideas throughout the last say 3,000 years have been so for instance Descartes like we were saying mm. you know that's a long time <laughs> uh, when was he around that was uh, 15th century wasn't he mid 16th something like that 16th or 17th something like that yeah and his his ideas obviously the the Cogito has, has really stood the test of time mm. um, or you know not all of his ideas obviously have but um, certain parts which are which are you know, can we call it genius? I don't know. Well, he was we he was that? certainly... He was probably... I, I mean, if we can call Socrates the father of philosophy, we can call Descartes the father of science, definitely. Oh, I've not heard that about him before. Is that, he, he do you make that understand, or is that...? No, I'm, I'm not that original. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I've Where'd heard you get it that somewhere. From it? I do like that, yeah. I, do I don't like know, that. I've heard it somewhere. But he definitely... He's sort of... 
you know, made massive leaps forward for certainly the modern era. We wouldn't be anywhere without him, I don't think. Yeah, or at least not yeah, as far as we are. Yeah, the Enlightenment kind yeah. of era, isn't it? But it's I mean, we, we were gonna we were gonna go on to talk about Descartes. Got a bit off track. Yeah, um, go on. So, like, yeah, what's yeah? So let's highlight let's talk some about of his ideas, and then we can. Yeah. So, like like Socrates, um, Descartes worked with um, doubt in particular. That was his main tool. And his his yeah. first sort of wave of doubt of the three was um how can we be sure that our senses are telling us the truth and mm. it's it's true when you think about it i mean we tend to you know a lot of things when they pop into our heads we just assume they're true um you know i assume that i'm seeing you with my eyes and that's just they're just telling the truth and i'm 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 hearing things accurately um but when you think about it you know even just a little bit it it, it sort of falls apart because we have optical illusions you know the classic um or in the water, you know, it looks bent, it looks misshapen. Um, well, there's the facts that we're talking right now with a computer, so we're not actually in front of each other. Mm. And given given the right technology, we could sort of create the the impression that we are in front of each other, you know? So like, yeah. you know, VR and stuff, for instance, in the future. Yeah, but um, it's Just definitely an <laughs> not an easy thing to say that we're perceiving the truth all the time. Mm. And and that was his um that was his first wave of doubt anyway that was on the first page of the meditations um how do we know <laughs> it's a it's a this is this is somewhat i was i would call this local skepticism at the minute he does go on to bigger more global skepticism yeah but um yeah it's true i mean there's a variety of optical illusions and that that we come across you know the classic ones on the internet and um if we can be sure or, or relatively certain in that instance that our senses are deceiving us, then how do we know our senses aren't deceiving us all the time? Yeah. And it can be uh, worrying, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. Um, did he have a proof for that? Uh, no, so did, his his method... Did, what was his get out for that? So his method, because he wanted to find certainty in the sciences that was his goal at the start of the meditation so he wanted to make yeah. sure that the sciences were certain and so what he said was right if i can doubt anything just a little bit then it then it has to go i have to assume it's false because that's not going to be a good foundation for truth mm. um and because we can think of instances you know little instances in our day-to-day -day lives where our senses do deceive us then then we have to assume that they're deceiving us all the time like how do we know that the world because we live in our senses, all we have is our senses and we're directly acquainted with what our um, our eyes and ears and our, our mouth and everything tell us is the case. Um, we don't have anything else beyond that. We don't have direct access to the external world. So how do we know that the external world is anything like what we perceive it to be? Yeah, I That's... think that, that question can still stand. I don't think, um, you know, there's 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 a certain restricted way of viewing the world that we have and that is through our senses and you know um in certain dimensions um and i don't know is that resolvable i don't know i don't I, I, it's well, kind of a very a, a, a narrow and kind of um one dimensional view of the well three dimensional view of the world <laughs> yeah. to uh to to assume that this is this is all there is and uh because this is this is all we experience. No one ever really considers other 
other uh, means of experience, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Other. I mean, that's a, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. I mean, we, we can only experience the world in three dimensions. Um, it's highly unlikely that the universe out there exists in three dimensions. I mean, look at super string theory in that. It, something like 12 dimensions, isn't it? That posits. There could be so yeah. many more that we, we're just not experiencing. So I think uh, in light of that argument, it's really hard to assume that what we perceive is the truth. It's it's easier yeah. to um it's yeah. easier to be skeptical about it than to just write it off as just another stupid um overthinking. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, it, in, in very recent history, they've discovered that you know new fields like the electro the um sorry the uh, electromagnetic field or the uh, gravitational field, and there's who's to say there aren't various other fields which we're not currently aware of which yeah. are factoring in certain different ways you know um it's getting a bit it's getting a bit uh woo woo from me a bit now but yeah <laughs> um but you know that it's, it's it's true you know it's uh it's it's this is what skepticism is it's it's about doubting it's about um sort of removing certain assertions you have about the world yeah um and i think just from my memory there were two responses two main responses to this from John Locke and the first one was that um, our senses are involuntary we don't choose what we perceive it just it happens to us you know we don't have any I, ca I can't suddenly imagine that I'm perceiving the world a different way it doesn't work like that yeah. so that's sort of strong evidence that there is something out there that's the cause of our perceptions I suppose because we can only work within the confines of how we're built and what's around us yeah yeah. I mean, the other, the other main scepticism sort of related to that was um, how can we be sure that we're not just imagining things, you know, sort of going off that response. And John Locke, it's one of my favourite responses ever. He says, um, you know, it's, it's one thing to imagine uh, the heat of a fire. It's another thing to stick your hand in it, <laughs> you know. So yeah. th there's some sort of evidence <laughs> um, that there's something out there um, besides from what's just in our heads um, and I think it's reasonably it's not easy to write off but it's reasonably safe to assume that there is something out there given that um, me and you could both agree on something you know there's a table there and we could both agree on that and we could we could measure it and we'd come up with the same measurements um, it's reasonably secure yeah me measurements within within our sort of the world that we perceive, I suppose, the, the three-dimensional yeah. world that we perceive. Yeah. Uh, but then again, coming coming off that again, the um, the whole qualia debate, the inverted qualia, um, you know, if you're looking at the sky and you perceive it as blue, and I say, oh yeah, the sky is blue, but I'm actually seeing it's red in, in, in yeah. my head. This, and, as far as I understand, isn't something that you can, that you can resolve either. There's, there's no way of me being able to tell if you're seeing the same thing as me. Is that right? Yeah, because qualia, or as they're currently understood, are inherently private things. And yeah. I don't have access to your qualia, you don't have access to mine. Yeah. And it seems like something, at least in in that regard, that's quite irresolvable. True. There is there is certain intuitions that we have, though. For example, pleasure and pain and, and these sorts of things, I guess. So, mm. you know, it would... It, it, our intuitions suggest that what I feel as 
pain isn't isn't what you feel as pleasure and vice versa yeah we can we can make sort of um the way we behave and yeah like by analogy from us from our own cases i can assume that if you're you know screaming lying on the ground bleeding then (laughs) you're probably in in pain um yeah Yeah. i think that's one of the things that can be reasonably secure um but then to return to descartes he goes on from that to his um to his second wave and he says okay we can't be certain that the senses aren't telling us the truth um but how do we know that we're not dreaming all the time yeah um and and the classic response to that is well you know you're in a dream because when you wake up from a dream you know it's it has been a dream and it's not been real yeah um but that does nothing for the fact that we might be in a dream right now yeah um and that's a sort that's of step always up. fascinated me and yeah. again, something I haven't quite sort of fully figured out per- on a personal level. Mm. It's um, yeah, it's pretty scary. It's a scary I don't, prospect. I don't, yeah, I mean, it's scary in that we feel secure and, and comfortable and safe in our own in our own kind of world. But it's that kind of inception idea, isn't it? It's you know, have you seen that? Yeah, yeah, it's a top film, and it's yeah. um, can't say I understood it, but. <laughs> Oh, I fucking loved it. Um, yeah. I, do you know what? I actually... Um, I read a tweet the other day. Yeah. Which... Uh, <laughs> tweets don't usually hold valuable philosophical information, I must say. But yeah. this one was particularly good. It said something like, um, imagine if when you die, you um, open your eyes and there's a bong in your hand. <laughs> and you look up and your alien friend says how was it <laughs> <laughs> and I just think Christ yeah like there's no reason why that couldn't be that couldn't happen you know yeah be, this, this could just be a big trip a big uh, yeah. you know there, there was something I saw sort of similar to that um, a bit more darker than that but it was uh, you sort of you die and then you wake up from whatever it is in, in the hereafter and uh Satan comes up to you and he says, "Oh, how was your first torture session?" <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, that's that that would <laughs> that would be somewhere else. That would." Oh. Yeah, I mean, if 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 you if you really start kind of think thinking about sort of what this world provides for us in terms of you know suffering and balanced out by the amount of joy, I think. This this place is kind of a lot more in the in the realms of hell than it would be heaven. Mm. If you can define, if you can define either of those things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, of course, there's been a lot of work done on that theologically through the ages. Mm. Um, the one I most like is um, it's called the the Soul Making Theodicy by John Hick. Ooh. Ooh. And uh, a theodicy is just any attempt to reconcile. The existence of a good God with the amount of suffering that's in the world. Yes. And his argument was that so the world we come into the world and the world is is broken because of you know because of the fall and and all the events that led up to it. Um, and we're supposed to we're here. It's the world he defines as the the veil of soul making, and and we're here to kind of test our souls and 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 build up. Uh, our sort of resistance to these things and and he says that you know we're not God's little pets to be put in this kind of luxury you know 
cage and everything for his amusement we're here to we're here for a reason you know we're here to um to grow spiritually and, right. and, and morally um and that's my my favorite attempt to reconcile the existence of a good god with the amount of suffering i mean there is there is a lot of suffering you'll um i'm writing a video at the moment on evil and i think mm. people people tend to assume that evil if you believe in the existence of evil as such that it's this archaic idea they're like you know what are you in in the medieval ages you know evil um <laughs> but i mean even a, even a cursory understanding of 20th century history can convince anyone you know unless they're not made of stone you know like yeah evil exists you know it's out there uh the world is hell <laughs> i i kind of disagree with you here because yeah i suppose it depends on our definition of evil so when it comes down to it for me evil is is sort of intention um and i think even if people do terrible things sometimes i think it can be born well i think it is born of ignorance in in certain ways so mm. um and i think if i remember rightly again this is going back quite a long time now to my formal studies of philosophy but yeah. <laughs> but like nietzsche spoke about like evil and yeah i'm gonna butcher this entirely but it was something to do with evil being a term which um slaves would use towards their owners Mm. Um, as as a means of sort of like um, revenge or like satisfying the the injustice in the world. No, I think I know what you're talking about. It's the um, the master slave morality, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that was yeah. it. Yeah, because he was talking about um, the genealogy of Christianity, where Christian morals come from, where Western values come from, and it was in um, the yes. Roman times where it's all coming back to me. Yeah. Now. All the formal studies are coming back, <laughs> knocking around at the back of your head. Yeah, um, the the Christians at this time were persecuted by the Romans, and because um, the Roman the Roman values were all like you know putting yourself first. You should be courageous. You should be brave. You should be all these things. You should grow yourself. You know, put yourself first. And then the Christians, because they were the the slaves essentially in this master slave dynamic, they they were like, well, that stuff must be evil. So let's have our values be um you know temperance and kindness and turning the yes. other cheek and he was yes. like no 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 that's the wrong thing to believe you're, you're taking the slave mindset you should be taking the master mindset you should be putting yourself forward which was his big issue with christianity yeah yeah okay um you've explained it a lot yeah. better than i it's um i think it was <laughs> who else i think it was Anne rand wrote about this as well oh yeah she wrote i think it was a, a book or an article or something on the the banality of evil so she was looking at all the um the nuremberg trials of all the nazis and she was looking at all these people all the all the nazi um you know officers and everything and she didn't see evil people she just saw people that were doing what they were told you know and and that was all there is to it is it's not evil as such they were just they had orders and they followed them and, yeah. and anyone in that position would have done I, I'm not familiar with with that of of Ayn Rand, but it's that sounds exactly the same as as Milgram's experiment of the. Of yeah, the, do, uh, do you want to do you want to go into shocks. that a bit? Sure. I mean, we're going off skepticism a little bit here, but that's fine. Isn't oh it? yeah. Just meander into different stuff. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, whilst on the subject of evil, I think Milgram was trying to was thinking about 
whether those who did horrendous things in Nazi Germany were evil or had something different about their biological makeup or whether in fact it was down to something else and what he theorized was it was that they were simply following orders um, and he ran an experiment uh, in which he got participants to slowly induce increasing voltages to to a person on the other side of the window um, again it's a little more complex than that but <laughs> essentially that was it um, yeah. and he found that well yeah a key component to that actually was that Milgram himself was telling the participants to keep administering these shocks when whenever they got a question wrong and, and after a while it became clear that the other person on the other side of the window was uh, in serious distress but because Milgram was there sort of forcing him to, to press this button essentially not physically but you know mentally I guess he continued to or they would continue to, to press that button and essentially end up um, killing them in theory I think essentially he concluded from that that this this is what's causing a lot of the troubles in Germany at the time this is difficult because I don't know I don't know myself whether I'm defining evil as like an actual thing that exists out there in the world or mm. um, you know and these are all valid points that evil people air quotes um, are just people following orders you know they're in the wrong place at the wrong time and I think it's difficult to say I, well it's easy to say now but um, I think it's it's difficult to say that were any of us in Nazi Germany at the time and we found ourselves being Nazi officers that we wouldn't have done the same yeah and uh, I suppose I th- it's context dependent yeah it depends on a lot of things you know your upbringing and and the sort of um, your environment at the time but um, yeah I mean as it turned out a lot of people did buy into it and a lot of people did you know buy into the sort of Nazi idea I suppose yeah. um, and it's it, you know once you realise that it's kind of scary but it's it's worth knowing about yourself as a person I think yeah that you might be willing to do that yeah, well, I mean, if if people were willing to do it at the time, then that means that anyone at any time is capable of doing it as well. Yeah. Um, yeah so I, I don't know whether I want to say evil exists, but I think it's definitely apparent that people have a massive capacity to cause others suffering uh, with a reason or without one. Um, yeah. Maybe we're defining evil differently here. Yeah. This is where I disagree. Is I think it's any, any actions that that sort of cause suffering that way are born of sort of ignorance. Mm. Um, that's my general. That's my positive outlook. That's how I like to look at life, anyway. When you say when you say ignorance, what are you sort of defining that as? Um, a failure to to um, empathize with another person, for instance, or. Um, ignorance as to what you think is is right or um yeah just some sort of something's gone wrong in 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 the way that um they think about the world but then subjective as well isn't it yeah yeah definitely but then what about those situations where uh someone knows something's wrong and and they're aware that it's wrong and they know the consequences and then they do it anyway would that you know something sort of begging the question but something that doesn't come out of ignorance they're fully aware that it's wrong 
uh, and they fully intend to bring around bring about suffering to this person or this thing you know say someone's you know i know it's a bad thing to to kick this dog but <laughs> i'm going to do it anyway because i want to yeah um but if you what so would for you... example like a compulsion to to do something based on just raw physical desires for instance you know your yeah. rage um violent attacks based on rage for instance is that is that what you mean yeah i think that's hard to say that comes from ignorance but maybe i don't know if you've got another way to define yeah, it but... or, or would you say that that's that's a, an evil action that's that's a good point it doesn't come from ignorance but i wouldn't say it comes from evil either right um yeah yeah i have to think a bit more about that one that's a hard one yeah I mean, I, I, I forget how we came onto this topic. <laughs> I know, yeah. But um, I was I was watching a lecture recently on um, Cain and Abel, as it happens, and I don't know. I wonder what you think of that then, because it's a very kind of an archetypal story. Um, you know, Abel's sacrifice is is favoured by God. Cain doesn't like it. Cain gets filled with jealousy, and he becomes. Brought, I think is the word in the Bible, great word. Um mm. and he just he clubs him to death with with a rock. I mean, what's what sort of action would you say that was? Yeah. Um I don't I don't want to get too much into other topics here, but it's mm. kind of um this kind of goes into the whole idea around sort of deterministic theories and kind of how much you're in control of your own actions and these sorts of things but, yeah uh, that's I think, just um, a whole other area which we shouldn't get into here but <laughs> well we could come back to it later because that's that's another example of uh, scepticism about the way our, our lives are mm, um, okay you know okay. the illusion of free will and that but we can we can talk about that later um, yeah alright so to come back to Descartes um, go on then yeah. after, after that let's, um, let's finish him off let's massive tangent off. let's finish him off so yeah, we've come from the dreaming thing. Um, we can't be certain that we're not dreaming right now. Uh, and his final wave of doubt, which is his most global wave of doubt, was that uh, massively famous, he hypothesized the existence of this um, evil demon, which which doesn't mean to say the evil demon exists, but because the possibility for it is there, he has to take it as true. Um, yep. You know, what if there's an evil demon that's deceiving me about everything all the time, even my capacity to use reason? which is a, a massive step up from the other two. And you're kind of left there thinking like, oh, how do I know anything? Um, how do I know yeah. what I am? How do I know the external world exists? How, how am I supposed to, how do I know I exist? You know, um, mm. can, can the evil demon trick me into thinking that I exist when I don't? Yeah. And this is where the, um, as you mentioned, the Kagito comes in. So uh, he says, okay, so this demon might be able to trick me into thinking I exist when I don't, but is it possible to doubt the, um, or, or be sceptical about the, the fact that I exist? And Descartes says, well, no, because by the sheer act of doubting that you exist, that doubt infers or implies your existence. You yeah, can't, you can't, so... you can't uh, doubt and not exist. Yeah, exactly. So if there is an evil genius who's deceiving you, then that implies that there is something to deceive in the first place, right? Is that it? Yeah, basically. Yeah, and there's been yeah. there's been a bit of discussion throughout time about what the precise nature of 
the cogito is. So the the proper formulation of the cogito is I am thinking, therefore I exist. Yeah. And he makes it clear that it's not a it's not supposed to be a syllogism, which is uh, you know premise premise conclusion. It is I am thinking, therefore I exist. And from what people, well, from what I read from the meditations anyway, he seems to sort of take it as a a transcendental argument, something that's true just by thinking it or saying it, you know, whatever you say, I am, I exist, it sort of reaffirms the fact that that you are actually a thing, you do exist, just by saying those words. Yeah. And I think maybe it's the maybe it's the only argument that's like that, because I can't think of any others any other proofs that are true just by saying them. Can you can you go a bit further than that? I mean again I've I've not I've not um studied this a long time now and, and I know there was a lot of a variety of different um, rebuttals to that um, but can you go a bit further and say not I think therefore I am but something thinks therefore something is yeah so and I think and you can reduce it even more and say something exists like that is the that's the sort of bare minimum you can you can expect yeah so the the classic rebuttals um the one you brought up as you said you know is Descartes says I am thinking well who's the I is it you is it someone else is it a thing is it okay. a person yeah. um yeah he never says what this I is and oh, so yeah. you know you you can think you're you know everyone's got like a running uh stream of consciousness in their mind at any one time I know I do <laughs> anyway talking incessantly in the background and um but yeah you know is it, is it me that's doing that thinking? How do I know it's me? And then this sort of comes into the, the Humean thing, um, something we discussed briefly in the podcast with Exerbia, which is, uh, so Hume says, you can look inside yourself and you see, you know, you see a variety of thoughts and perceptions. You can, you can hear your inner monologue and you can, uh, you, can, you can look at things and you're aware that you're looking at things and how they feel qualitatively to you. But no matter how hard you look into yourself, you can never perceive a self that's not something that you can perceive inside your mind by introspection so it's not clear yeah. that the self actually exists yeah absolutely I don't, I don't know if you're kind of um, you've experimented it all with meditation but that's kind of that's a very sort of direct way of kind of experiencing that and kind of dissolving the ego I suppose is one way to put yeah. it yeah um, um I've done a bit of meditation. Um, mm. And what was your like experience with that? Like, it's funny because you become very aware. I don't know if it's if it's just me. It might be you as well. I become very aware when I'm meditating and, and focusing on breathing that that I'm a I'm an embodied thing. I, I feel that I I feel particularly embodied. You know, physical when yeah. I when I meditate. Um, I don't know if that's the point. It's probably the opposite. You're supposed to be a passive recipient of things. Um, there's 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 lots of different points to to the meditation, but um, I, I suppose it kind of just it, it allows you to 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 bring awareness to yourself in a way which you don't have when you just have this classic stream of consciousness running all day. So I mean, ninety nine point nine percent of your life, you just you just in your own head. You know, your just thoughts are just running running around your head, but the point of meditation isn't to not think the point is to observe when you when these thoughts arise which is all the time right? yeah and 
if you sit there for half an hour or an hour and do that every couple of days or whatever, you get really good at noticing when thoughts pop into your head and, and the sort of character of those thoughts, whether they're positive or negative or, you know, this sort of thing. So, I mean, train it trains you to focus for a start, but it also trains you to um, start to watch your own thoughts. And then doing that, you can separate yourself from your thoughts it's it's real strange yeah so that's something to talk about um if the point of meditation is to separate you know we can say separate the thoughts from the thinker um what exactly is it that descartes manages to prove with the cogito is it that the that the thinker exists or that there are there are thoughts just sort of floating in the void that uh make up the idea of him as a person yeah i think that's that's the very least it proves, isn't it? Yeah. It yeah. It's not like you can't entirely disprove Descartes here. I don't think can you like fully. No. You can reduce it even more and say, really, it's just he's only proven that something exists, that yeah. something is thinking, that something. You know. Yeah. Um, well, that's that's the second um, that's the second reduction you can make is um, do thoughts need a thinker? Which yeah. which is one of those sort of. Um, questions that you'll say to someone who doesn't study philosophy and they'll be like why do you take this subject <laughs> you know <laughs> where's the utility in that um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah i mean it's, I mean, a, it's, actually, a, <laughs> it's quite dry as well i mean like this i haven't i haven't looked at this stuff in years just because like the whole like rashness and empiricist stuff i kind of i was like, i'm done with this like i know it now like, I, I don't i don't want to go over it again yeah <laughs> <laughs> so like i can't I, I just think about like I'm more into like existentialist philosophy nowadays. It's yeah. kind of what I look at, but yeah, but yeah, it's uh oh god, bringing back terrible memories, Mister Verse. <laughs> I think only at the bare minimum he manages to prove that he and just him is some, you know, non-physical thoughts floating in a void that may or may not be getting tricked on by an evil demon, <laughs> yeah. which isn't much, but um. This is where Descartes gets a bit sneaky because he does this little sleight of hand and he says, well, the cogito is clearly and distinctly true. That was his sort of, uh, his mantra when going about this project. And, and <laughs> Final word, it's done, it's true. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, it, it is. It is one of those things where you listen to it and it just thinks, yeah, that does make sense. Um, at least at the bare minimum level. So he's managed to prove he exists in some form. Fair enough. But then what he does is he says, okay, well, anything else I perceive clearly and distinctly must be true as well. And uh, he says, well, I can clearly and distinctly know that God exists. And it's like, mm, maybe not. Yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. Yeah. And then it's it's because God exists that then he can say, well, I know that the evil demon doesn't exist because God is good and God wouldn't deceive me like that. And then he can sort yeah, of... That's another weird assumption. He, he sort of, that. you know... Funnily enough, he, he builds up his picture of the world the same as it was before, but free of any doubt. And that was his sort of his goal. There was one analogy that I like was um, he picks out um, the rotten apples from the fruit basket and uh, he's got his certainty and the scientific method from, can, uh, can kick off from there because the, the fundamental assumptions about the world he knows now with absolute certainty are true. I think he kind of goes full circle, doesn't he? He does. He goes to yeah. all, he goes all, saying that basically nothing is 
you can tell basically nothing. Yeah. And then he goes full circle and then, and then assumes a bunch of stuff on top of that. Well, that was the, um, just talking yeah. of circularity, the, um, the Cartesian circle, the massive flaw in his thinking that people have since outlined is... Um, What's that? So he says that God exists. And he's like, yeah, okay. How do you know God exists? And he says, well, I can clearly and distinctly perceive it's true. And you can say, well, how do you know that what you clearly and distinctly perceive is true? Well, God exists. So, <laughs> and, and he just goes round and round and round in a yeah. circle. And it's like, well, you haven't really proved a lot. Um, only that he exists in some form. And yeah. that's the problem with global skepticism like Descartes does. He doubts everything he possibly can is that you can never resolve it once you've once you've got that doubt you can always be skeptical and i mean yeah granted it does take a bit of a metaphysical leap of faith shall we say um to believe anything is true because once you have the seeds of global doubt you know sort of sown in your mind you can't rid yourself completely of it um yeah i suppose that kind of paves the way a little bit into sort of the 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 scientific method we have now in a way right yeah so I think like Pop Popper's a good example in that he sort of uh defines science as having to be something which you like a theory that you have to falsify rather than um something which you confirm to be true with evidence mm. accumulating sort of thing. Again, I'm 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 not the best teacher or explainer of things, yeah. but that's kind of it, isn't it? I think I mean what do you think? Do you think falsification is a good uh, metric for generating knowledge in terms of what's definitely true yeah that absolutely makes sense it's impossible to verify something's true but it is possible to falsify it you know I could make a claim that there's a you know an invisible intangible rabbit on my desk or something you can never verify that but you can know with um, like reasonable certainty that it's that it's not yeah, yeah. There, there was something I read. I can't remember if it was related to the scientific method or not, but it was. Uh, I think it was Bertrand Russell, and he said, um, "Oh, you know, there's a there's a teacup floating in space between Earth and Mars." Yeah, so that's that's the floating teapot theory, isn't it? So I think that was that was in relation to God. So he was saying that um, I can claim something like there's there's a floating teapot orbiting the Earth, and you can't see it and you can't perceive it but it's there yeah um and because you can't you can't falsify it well he he he's basically saying that this type of knowledge is trash basically because you because you can't falsify it so it's something you can't assert yeah and he made the analogy to god in that you can't just say well i perceive it i, I think it's there so yeah i believe it's there if it's unfalsifiable, then it's a it's a non-starter as an argument kind of thing. Yeah, that was it. Like the um, like the rabbit on my desk, I could I could posit it's there, and you could never falsify it. So it's yeah, you can't really get anywhere with that sort of um. There's just nothing to do about it, is there? You, you I could say anything exists, um, but if it's unfalsifiable yeah. in principle, then you can you can never know anything about it. It's 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 sort of a a nothing theory, isn't it? Yeah. So, um. Again, I think Popper sort of highlighted the difference between a, a scientific theory in that respect. In that, say, like uh, the theory of like gravity, right? You can test that again and again, yeah. And you you but you you try and falsify that. But something uh, like 
making a, a vague theory on you know how society works as a as an organism or whatever yeah. you can find evidence for that all over the place it doesn't mean that it's necessarily true but if you can predict the way society is going to behave then that is something which is falsifiable because then you can just observe whether that prediction comes true or not sort of yeah. thing again yeah I'm, I'm not i'm not doing the best explanation of this but yeah um but that is sort of one incantation of the sort of sceptical method of of um, how we sort of like acquire knowledge, I guess, isn't it? This, this, the scientific method. And I suppose that brings it back to um, <laughs> how the apparent lack of progress in philosophy, because a lot of the things in philosophy, especially metaphysics, are unfalsifiable. Um, there's not things that, that we can know with uh, with any sort of certainty. Um, yeah. And that's where this is the that's... problem I have with philosophy. A lot of the time yeah. is that I, I, there's so many philosophers who I find their ideas appealing, and then I realise they actually they contradict each other. But because they're unfalsifiable, I can still like all of them. Yeah, <laughs> it's ridiculous, isn't it? Well, this is the sort of um, anti-representationalist view, isn't it? That we can have fundamentally different ways of viewing the world, and they're all sort of true. So we could have, you know, we can have a, a scientific worldview that's just as valid as a religious one, that's just as valid as a poetic one, um, and they're all sort of true. Um, yeah, I hate that. I hate that that's, that's the case, but you're right, yeah. You're mm. right, that is the case. But also, it kind of, that opens a door for you to change your mind on things and to change your opinion on the way the world works and in, in quite dramatic ways over, over time, you know? Mm. Um, and uh, I mean, I'm. I think I'm a bit older than you, but I've changed my mind radically on certain things over the years. And I kind of look forward to in ten, twenty, thirty years where I'll be, them, and what what I'll be thinking, what I'll believe then. You know. Yeah, it's sort of a continual process, isn't it? Because you can't expect yeah, you can't expect anyone to um, to know everything at the outset. So it's sort of impossible to make a. Um, I don't know, at least for me, it's impossible to have uh, a concrete belief in something that you you absolutely know is true because you don't know all the facts. So how are you supposed mm. to arrive at a conclusion when you don't have all the available um, data that you need to make that belief? Yeah. It's, it seems to be quite closely related to age as well. So, like, you know, the amount of people who I who I knew when I was, like, 15 or 20 or something who would say things like, I'm just going to live as as best I can whilst I'm young, and then I'll just kill myself when I get to the age of 60, because I won't, I won't, I won't want to live past that anyway, so yeah. I'll just go mad and like and ruin my body now. And I just think, well, what happens when you actually reach 60? And you're, you're not going to feel the same. No. Um, another example would be how people gradually go from liberalism in, in their youth to conservatism as they get older. Yeah, that's always fascinated it's, me. It's closely linked with age, isn't it? Yeah. These, this, the sorts of these, your, your sort of philosophy, philosophy in a, in a broader sense of the word on life. It's kind of it's, it's very closely linked to where you are in your life. Yeah. Um, and you can kind of predict where your own mind's going to go as well. You know. Yeah. Strangely. Yeah, it's a weird thing, but then I suppose this is why um, people should engage in the philosophical method because that's how you would come to arrive at uh, knowledge and, and become more secure in your beliefs is by 
by talking to other people like we're like we're doing now and mm. um you know disagreeing and making criticisms and things because you're not expected to nor can you have all the facts at any one time about um your beliefs and at some point it's it's got to be a sort of leap of faith because you know human lives they're um they're finite uh, we don't live forever so we're never going to have all the facts um unless you're like uh, the faust or something and uh you know things are going to change over time necessarily so there's always going to have to be a leap of faith in there somewhere at least that's what i think anyway i suppose the other problem with the scientific method or it, or or any of it actually is like the assertions that theories are built on so do you know thomas kuhn is it thomas kuhn i'm not sure right yeah so he was a guy that talks about different paradigms in in science and about how there's sort of certain paradigmatic shifts that go on over time um for example um newton's theory of what was it what was what was newton <laughs> which was gravity sort of, yeah was it gravity yeah i think yeah so. and then that was sort of surpassed by einstein's theory but before einstein everyone had based their own theories on newton's theories of gravity so yeah you know so <clears throat> any knowledge that we do have on on anything either in science or any other field it's going to be based on a range of assumptions which we take for granted yeah and this was this was sort of descartes project to make sure that his assumptions were at least justified in some sense yeah even if they couldn't yeah, be justified fully those assumptions from the ground right i suppose yeah um yeah from the ground up and this is where you know you get the sort of anti-representationalist um postmodern viewpoints where there is no consensus and i wonder if we did like don't question me on postmodernism because i haven't got a clue um <laughs> but if if we did live in a sort of postmodern society and everyone took that for granted um if any science was was even possible because if there's no one set of facts that we can uh, prefer over the other if if there's an infinite number of ways of reading into the nature of reality and they're all equally valid um how are you supposed to generate any knowledge from that it seems like a sort of non-starter yeah i i don't delve too much in postmodernism it kind of muddies the waters of knowledge a little bit doesn't it it does yeah <laughs> so yeah it kind of uh you know if you think i'm talking gibberish now then if i try and get into postmodernism then it'll make any sense yeah it's, it's one of those things that are best avoided <laughs> um I don't know where we can go from here, really. <laughs> Same. Um, That's such a testament to postmodernism, and it? it just kills a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so what? So you're you're a a philosophy student, aren't you? Yeah. So have you found that learning these different ways to to think has has sort of helped you in any way in thinking about other ideas aside from philosophy sort of thing um i can definitely say it's helped me um it's given me the tools with which to prod and poke at the assumptions i take for granted yeah it's okay because i think that's what's unique about philosophy um as a humanity and sort of as a subject in its own right um 
it gives you the tools with which to think exactly yeah and that's why i don't regret <laughs> my degree in doing that at all because it's, it's served me well throughout life so i think the the reason why skepticism is, is important in this is because i i naturally sort of go to that that kind of method of thinking just placing doubt into any idea so this is where i think skepticism can come in in into a variety of different areas right so like when we said about doing this podcast i was like well actually i realize that i use skepticism or like the idea of casting doubt on things on a daily basis about everything yeah and not interested in philosophy so um i think it's kind of a, a really useful tool um on a grander scale i suppose yeah it's um i think it's important because um I mean, we, it goes all the way back to Plato. Um, all of Plato's books, they weren't just philosophical texts as you'd read today, like really dry articles and that. Um, they were they were dialogues. They were all named after people. And it was Socrates, usually Socrates, talking to someone and they'd engage in a discussion. It's an important factor of knowledge because I don't think any one person could come up with or sort through mentally all the facts they need to come up with a, a concrete distinction because there's always going to be biases on your part and there's going to be stuff that other people know that you don't and I think a, a dialogue in, in, in line with the um, Socratic method is really important in discovering what um, what your beliefs are made of and what the assumptions are yeah and, and what you think I do wonder whether I'll sort of go throughout my life and just keep flip-flopping between theories and ideas that I like more. <laughs> Do you know? Yeah. That kind of concerns me a little bit that I that I'm that I'm too much of a skeptic in a way and that I'll just discard idea after idea and after idea and I'll be left confused, you know? Yeah. Um is that something that concerns you? Like Yeah, it's definitely a problem well, like we were saying earlier that um it's never good to be too skeptical about things because it's just unhelpful at some stages. Like, yeah, it's all well and good for Descartes to invoke this evil demon that might be deceiving him about everything he knows. Um, but if you can never fully get rid of that, like the brain in a vat example is the other one. Um, you know, you can never be sure you're not just a brain in a vat yeah. with an evil scientist tinkering with your perceptions, feeding you things that you think are real. Um, it's all well and good to entertain those ideas, but at the end of the day, they're not going to help you in any sense uh, discover truth for yourself or discover knowledge. Um, no, it, it, it will, at the very least, considering those ideas that will drive you mad, like the brain, the vat, or like the simulation theory, or at least give you reason to sort of be humble in your assertions, yeah. right? Yeah, I think that's a lot of... Um, especially Buddhist teachings, but I think it's becoming more popular that the opinion that, um, you know, we don't know everything and, and that's a scary thing because there's a lot more that we don't know than, than what we know. Um, but I think you should take it with um, humility and be, be humble about the things that you don't know about because uh, I think that leads to greater sort of fulfillment and happiness in your life, knowing that there's a lot of stuff that you don't know. It sort of puts you in your place and you think, you know, huh, I'm just a really small 
small thing, an important thing, don't get me wrong, because you're, you're you and, and you're important to you and to other people. But I think it's always good to maintain a healthy skepticism about the things that you think you know. Otherwise you get cocky and you get arrogant. Yeah, it's it, you need to balance it, don't you? Yeah. That's the thing. This is this is why it's I, good to to talk with other people because you're never going to hear alternate viewpoints if all you you hear is yourself and you 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 constantly back up your own ideas and it's like well yeah, of course you're going to back up your own ideas, they're your ideas. Um and you're never going to get anywhere further than that if you don't chat with other people and engage in this philosophical method, even a scientific method to to try and falsify your belief to see if there's anything wrong with them to make you realize that um you know i really don't know everything and there's there's more out there to discover and there's more work to be done yeah i suppose it's kind of being skeptic is is a way of like sharpening the tools you know it, it, engaging in conversations with people who you feel you feel is wrong about something and trying to pick pick holes in it that's kind of just i suppose that's kind of de- debate isn't it really rather than yeah um i mean philosophy this, is kind of the art of debating this is why um plato in particular was so um angry and upset about um sophistry in particular because you know they're great debaters the sophists and in ancient greece you, right. you'd pay them or and, and they'd um they'd convince you about anything using rhetoric and they'd use language to convince you of a point that isn't necessarily true but that's what they're using that's their skill is rhetoric they know how to talk and they know how to convince people um yeah but that's no good if you want to find truth and you want to live according to what's true rather than thinking you're right when actually you're wrong yeah it's hard isn't it it's hard it is hard but um there's a great quote from uh, David Hume that I'll paraphrase he says um, skepticism is like coleslaw he says uh, it's alright on the side of your meal but you wouldn't want to eat a whole meal of just coleslaw um, <laughs> <laughs> that can't be right did he really say that? yeah he did yeah I'm pretty sure it was him yeah <sighs> but I mean it's, it, it's true whether it, whether he said it or not Actually, do you know what? I think I've heard a similar quote from Hume now, I think about it, but not with the colourful coleslaw metaphor. (laughs) It was something like, be a philosopher, but amidst all that, still be a man. No, yeah, that's a good quote, because, you know, as philosophers, they like to think that they they know everything. They've got a direct sort of pipeline to the truth, at least some of them do. Um, Descartes definitely did. And uh, I think it's nice to know that, you know, you're a man, you're limited. There's there's stuff that you don't know and there's stuff that you're never going to know. And um, all we can try and do really in our lives is um, keep working towards knowing more than we do today. Um, you know, learning more about the world tomorrow than we know right now. And all we can do is sort of edge closer to the truth. Yeah, but that's the thing. Can we do that? And this is what I was saying about being almost too sceptical and discarding ideas too quickly. And back again to Kuhn's uh, paradigm idea, you know, if the whole structure of your reality breaks down, I mean, it's, it's quite enlightening when you change your opinion so radically, but can you keep doing that forever, like throughout your whole life? Because mm. if you get to the point where you're old and you realise your mind has 
been continuously changing perspective for so long. I imagine it's quite unsettling. Yeah, I think it's. Uh, I think it can be a comforting thing. Um, I mean, it can be a source of massive existential anxiety um, on the one hand, but it, it can be nice to know that, um, you know, that there is no, maybe there is, maybe there isn't, but for all we know, there's no one set of facts out there that's true with a capital T, you know, at least nothing that we can get at with our current science and understanding anyway. Um, but just to to take in all the all the information we get, all the information we can, um, and just to do what we can with it. We can only do what we can do. Um, and it's, it's just, yeah, like you were saying, it's, it's a balance really. Yeah. It's a hard one to strike. Even if we can never arrive at proper truth. Um, it was just like Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. And, I think the, be the best we can hope for is just to take all the information in, talk to different people, weigh it up, measure it, and um, go for as best as we can with our current knowledge. Yeah, at least that makes life interesting and just trying to explore different ideas Yeah, just makes life worthwhile in itself, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be any fun if we had all the answers, would it? It would, it would be boring. It would, you know, there's no sort of... Uh, point to living that way if, if all the answers are just given to us yeah i don't know if any of your followers know my uh twitter account but it's mostly an account which posts quotes all right so over the years yeah. i've sort of realized what people like most in terms of quotes and consistently one of the most popular quotes on there is the unexamined life isn't worth living and i think that speaks depths you know like i think People must just see that and think, yeah, you know. And, yeah. and I also pity people who really don't think about these things and just go about their daily lives in their own heads. And I think that just speaks depth to just about how important philosophy can be and how useful scepticism can be as a way of like navigating mm. the world and trying to sort of find your own truths. Yeah, it's... um. I don't think anyone can say that philosophy is completely useless. I mean, I might, I might end up working in a in a Costa coffee with my degree yet, but um, at, at least I'll be able to organise my thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, um, this has been a great conversation. Thank you very much for coming on. Yeah. I apologise for <laughs> stuttering so much on my part. My knowledge is not in depth <laughs> on any of this stuff, but I'm here. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, actually. You're a... Oh, well, thank you. You're a good host and a uh, good conversation as well. Well, thank you. Same to you. And keep up all the other content as well. It's good. And uh, keep up these podcasts. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, I'll, I'll try and keep them on going as long as I can. Anyone listening want to um, jump on the podcast, then uh, get in touch, yeah. Yeah, it's been good fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, everyone listening, definitely check out Philosophy on Ice's channel. Um get him to a thousand subscribers uh yeah <laughs> perhaps i'll do like a, a drunken ama at a thousand subscribers that sounds fantastic yeah i'll just get real drunk and do an ama <laughs> yeah <laughs> I'll, I'll definitely be there for that just very unacademic yeah like my channel uh well thank you very much man 
Appreciate it, buddy. Yeah, cheers. See you later. See ya. $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a world. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.